0: Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. We are going to shift our focus just a little bit and talk about the Quran. As listeners may be aware... Dr. Van Putten is, is, is an expert on the study of early Qur'anic manuscripts. And so I wanted to ask, what does the study of manuscripts entail? How do you get into the field and what's the training like?
1: Well, um, uh, really, I mean, so, so me getting into the Qur'an came from a linguistic perspective. I... Started off with this research project, actually planning to work on something slightly different from what I'm doing right now. I said I was going to look at the Arabic of the early Islamic period um, more generally. So looking at papyri, looking at transcriptions in different languages, these kinds of things. But the more I started working on that, I more I realized, look, um, the Quran seems like a pretty important resource for understanding the Arabic of the early Islamic period. It seems weird that nobody's written about this. And this is really, I mean, it's it's still something that baffles me to this day. Basically, since Karl Vollers, who wrote a somewhat crazy book in 1906, nobody has really done a linguistic study of the Quran by the Quran. And that is a real shame, because actually, It is a very ancient text, and the text that we have today, despite what some people might have you believe, is extremely well preserved, Um, and really, uh, even the text that we have uh, in the modern print editions is very close to what we find in early Islamic manuscripts. That is the rasan. that is the consonantal skeleton of the text, is very close uh, to what we find. That is, without the dots or almost no dots, without the vowels, these kinds of things. So it's still a fairly ambiguous text, but that part of the text is very well preserved. Um, But before I could start, but but there are some differences, and and the, the text has changed in its orthography and certain spellings here and there and these things are linguistically relevant so that's why i wanted to get into it so i started looking into manuscripts and see what they did because sometimes i got a spelling in the um say the the Cairo print edition the the most common say um, text form that of the text that we have today it's like i didn't expect this spelling here why is it spelled like this and i looked in the early manuscripts like hey it is actually spelled differently from what from what we see here and that made me realize how important it is to look at these manuscripts and better understand its textual history so we can also understand the linguistic history of the Quran. So that's basically how I got into it. And what was my training like? I mean, it's all self-taught to a large extent. And um, that's in combination with, of course, just reading a lot of literature and having great colleagues like like Eleonore Sellard and um, even um, uh, uh, François Desroches, uh, who've done wonderful work and... Uh, have taught me so much about these things. Um, and, but but it's, it's all self-taught. Uh, it, it's not a big field uh, working on manuscripts. It's, uh, it, it's bizarrely um, a lot of people are on Twitter and doing wonderful things with these things. Um, but uh, it's not a big field. So you just kind of teach yourself as much as possible. But what does it entail? Um, well, there's all kinds of ways that you can look at a manuscript. So first of all, I think one of, one of the things that interests most people is how old are these manuscripts and how do we know how old these manuscripts are? Um, frustratingly, we have very few early complete Qurans. Uh, very often, uh, large parts are missing, uh, sometimes smaller parts are missing, but we hardly ever have complete things. And moreover, we hardly ever have a written date on these manuscripts. Um, So for the first two centuries or so, we basically have no dated manuscripts. That is not to say that in the first two centuries, there were no manuscripts. Um, But we have to figure out ways to show that they're older than um, you might want to put them. Um, And how do you do this? You look at the scripts, the script style, how does it develop? How has it developed over time? How do these things interrelate with each other? You look at the um, at the ornamentation uh, and see if you can make certain connections with certain other art historical objects and see if you can say something about this. This was quite spectacularly done by uh, François de Roche when he started looking at manuscripts in the so-called O one one style. This is in his Quran's of the Umayyads, where he shows very nicely that a lot of the ornamentation is actually very similar to say, early Umayyad mosaics, um, the Dome of the Rock, and these kinds of things, um, and shows, well, clearly, there's some kind of connection going on here, which means that we must be placing these manuscripts in the Umayyad periods. And then you look at other manuscripts, like these look clearly earlier, less developed, so they must be even earlier. And through kind of placing these things in relative chronologies and using the few data manuscripts from later that we have, you can kind of get an idea How old are these things? So that's one of the important things that we do with the study of of, of, of the scripts. Um, Other things of the study of these manuscripts is, okay, how did the spelling develop? What kinds of variants do we find? We do sometimes, it's rare, it should be said, we do sometimes find a variants in the text that are different from what we have today. And sometimes meaningful differences, something that actually affects the text, and that's something, of course, where people were interested in you know, more text criticism and uh, that kind of side of, of, of autochronic texts are very interested in. Um, so that's another side of this. Um, yeah. Um, and then to some extent, uh, what I'm myself interested in is indeed uh, just real textual history. Where does the text come from? How did these texts interrelate? Who copied from whom? How did that develop? Uh, where did it get started? Um, and who standardized the text? These kinds of questions are things that we
0: uh, look at. And you're talking about some of the, the dating of some of the manuscripts that we have. What What's the date of our earliest manuscript of the Qur'an? And what's the date of the first complete copy of the Qur'an?
1: Yeah. Oh. Um, that's, um, well, they're not easy questions to answer. Um, so... Since we have so very few dated manuscripts, it's hard to say, um, but we have a couple of contenders for the earliest manuscripts, um, which some of them have been carbon dated, uh, which helps a lot, but at the same time, sometimes give strange results um, and strange results because they are they, they disagree a lot from one another, etc. cetera. Um, and some of them are dated earlier Uh, than ones that look older to our eyes which is a very subjective thing so sometimes we need to take these things seriously Um, but the earliest manuscripts that we have come from say the early 7th to mid 7th century so let's say you know um, so for, for carbon dating we get them around 650 to 700 already Um, And 6.50 is the traditional date that the the Qur'an got standardized. Um, So we really haven't that early. Uh, There's some reasons to be a little bit skeptical of the exact dating of that. There's questions that are kind of technical and which uh, should definitely be left up to experts, which I'm not. Haithun Sitki, for example, who's also very active on Twitter, uh, has much better understanding of these things and says that There might be a reason to expect a offset of about 19 years from the um, from the date that the carbon dating gives Uh, that would give some of these dates a slightly less awkward dating but even then uh, we still need have a lot to do before we really know how to integrate uh, the carbon datings that we get Uh, that being said uh, they do start to converge the ones that we consider Olds are definitely always dated earlier and the ones that we consider late tend to be dated later um, and they do all converge around the 7th century. It's clear that whatever's going on even if you know we're apparently completely wrong uh, I'm a big proponent of the traditional story of the standardization of the Quran um, but even if that turns out to be wrong it's not going to be wrong by 50 or well it's not going to be wrong by centuries you know it's going to be wrong by decades and when we look at complete Qurans, um, the earliest manuscript of the Quran that is complete is probably Arab 399. And that is a manuscript that is held in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Um, and that is really much later. It's written in a style that is um, quite typical for the mid third Islamic century. Um, but its official date that is written on it is somewhere in 190 Hijri. Hechri- 180 maybe, which is much earlier than other manuscripts in this style. Um, if that date is correct, which I don't think is completely unrealistic to be correct, then uh, that would be the earliest example of a complete Quran that has an actual date on it, and is just completely present from front to back, um, basically. Uh, we have other manuscripts which are probably earlier, which are basically complete. Uh, there's one manuscript that um, in the top palace in turkey uh which is more or less complete um it has a couple of pages missing here and there but it's just clearly due to damage and not because uh, those pages were not there or anything like that and that's probably mid-eighth century maybe a bit earlier than that I mean, who knows it's hard to say because we don't have an exact date on these manuscripts um so that that's kind of the the overview of say the dating of these things but really already from from very early 7th century we have manuscripts and that's quite clear
0: and then really briefly what jumps out at an individual who's studying these manuscripts well which will help them determine the date of of, of this particular manuscript
1: yeah um, well it's hard <laughs> it's 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 really difficult um so one thing that we kind of look at Uh, but which I think is sometimes problematic. So there's a distinction between Hijazi manuscripts and Kufi manuscripts. And this distinction comes down to, well, first of all, for Hijazi, we often say they have slanted alifs and slanted ascenders. So anything that goes up high, so a lamb or a calf or an alif, but especially the alif are very slanted. While today an alif would be written as a straight line, uh, a straight vertical line, they are quite slanted in, these early manuscripts and it's clear that the very earliest manuscripts very often have these slanted elifs Um, and that slant disappears in the Kufi manuscripts Um, but that's not the only difference which makes manuscripts look old or late and it would be very uncomfortable if we would only date by the slant Um, sometimes things have been called Hijazi which I don't think should be called Hijazi just because they have a slant um, well, I don't think that is the main distinguishing factor. So if we look more closely, uh, KUFI manuscripts, yes, elips are straight. They have a little tail at the end, but they're not just a, a straight line. But they have a little tail at the end, but they don't have the whole slant in it anymore. And, um, but KUFI manuscripts do a lot more. KUFI manuscripts are um, highly regular, uh, have a clear kind of almost geometrical thing all usually all lines are equidistant straight lines Um, there's just as many lines on every single page and there's a real geometry to to the shape of the letters which also starts making it very difficult to tell apart one hand from the other so sometimes we have manuscripts who are written by multiple people we see this all the time from the very earliest period to later, but at some point, it becomes very difficult to see because it's so clearly controlled, it's so calligraphic, and they all f- follow this very specific style. That it's actually very difficult to tell when one hand transitions to the other. Well, if you look at the early Hijazi manuscripts, it's much more free-flowing. Um, the letter shapes are less identical. Um, if you take any two words and place them over each other, they'll be quite different from one, each other, uh, from, from one another. The letters will be bigger, smaller, etc. Or well, if you do this in a Kofi manuscript, if you put them, it's almost like they use a stamp all over the place, and they have the exact same proportions everywhere. Um, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but that kind of gives the idea of the difference. Um, and we tend to assume that these much more exact, much more formal-looking scripts are later. seems like a reasonable assumption but it's worth pointing out that it's an assumption Um, so that's one thing that we go about these things so if it's slightly less formal looks more like um, other sorts of written documents um, then we consider them somewhat earlier and at some point VDA a holy script develops to start writing Um, I tend to be careful with this formulation because a lot of people say, yes, the earliest Quranic manuscripts just look like the documentary hand, the hand that we've seen in papyri. Um, but anyone who's ever actually looked at both papyri and Qurans will know that even the earliest papyri are much, much messier than Quranic hands. The Quranic hand is already very clearly a book hand from the very earliest period, but it's much closer to the documentary hand and much, much more recognizable um, uh, as being close to that. Um, so that's one thing that we look at. We'll also look at the layouts, um, so how many lines are there to the page. At some point manuscripts are becoming mostly written in a oblong format uh, with fewer lines to the page, Well, originally it had a, um, uh, a rectangular format where there's this, uh, it's higher than it, is, uh, than it is wide, and later becomes wider than it's high. So that's one thing, how big the margins are. Earliest manuscripts tend to have very small margins. Um, So that's how some of these things are approached. Yeah, and so so to get back very quickly, so, and there are some manuscripts, early manuscripts, I would say, that lack um, this pronounced slant in the alif, and I just have a straight aleph. but in, other, in many other ways, look extremely ancient, have all the similar kind of layout typicalities of um, what we call Hijazi manuscripts, and there's other manuscripts which clearly do have a slant, which looks much later. Um, so the slant is a bit of a red herring. It's true that once you have the slant, it's probably early, but there need to be some other things going on with that as well. Ornamentation is another one. We see a development of how ornamentation is done, how verse divisions are marked um, which tend to first just be dots but at some point they start marking 10 verses, 5 verses, uh, 100 verses, these kinds of things and that system kind of develops more and more formally as as you progress in time.
0: Thank you so much again Dr. I wanted to move on and ask you a bit about some of your major findings. You have a paper from 2019, I believe, uh, The Grace of God as Evidence for a Written Uthmanic Archetype, The Importance of Shared Orthographic Idiosyncrasies. And I think this is a very important paper. And I believe I heard about it actually in early 2018 by a professor in an early Islamic history seminar class that I had. And he mentioned I assume that this, this paper was presented before it was um, published. Uh, Professor Donner actually yes, uh, yes. he had mentioned it, and he was very impressed with the with the findings and I think this is pretty convincing for him and it was for me and I think pretty much everyone else that I've discussed this paper but was pretty convinced by the findings. I was just wondering if you could just briefly just tell us well, what you did and what you concluded in this in this paper.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yes. So I, I had I had presented this before and Fred Donner, I know him very well, and uh, he he got to hear it and was very impressed by it. So, yes, uh, it makes sense that you would have heard it sooner. So one thing, one of the main questions within, say, uh, the history of the Quran is, like, where does it come from? When was it standardized? How did this develop? Um, And for a long time, especially in in Western academia, there was a lot of uncertainty about when this happened, who did it, and whether... um, it was to be whether we should consider the traditional narrative to be factual and historical or not. Um, so let's first do the traditional narrative. Uh, the traditional narrative is that the third Caliph, Othman, around the year 650, um, decided to make a standard version of the text, um, presumably because of um, because of the expanding empire and fears that people might start developing very different versions of the texts, they wanted to make sure that everyone agreed on a single standard text. He had this text made, and distributed four copies, uh, one to Basra, one to Kufa, one to Medina, and one to Syria. We don't really know uh, what part of Syria, um, but Syria at least. And... Um, and that is, and from there copies were made from in, the, in these different regions, and that's how how it developed. Well, if that's true, um, which I think it is, and we'll get you into it why, it would mean that the text was standardized very early, and that indeed, if we want to learn something about the language of the Quran, we have a very early we have this is the very earliest um, document that we can use to understand the history of the language, etc. Which is why I got interested in it. But I noticed, as I was working on this, that there was a lot of skepticism that that was the case. Um, famously, in, in the 70s, uh, John Wansbrough argued that actually the collection of the Quran was only complete uh, about 200 years later. Um, the field had definitely come together on, on agreeing that that is certainly much too late. But how much too late was still very much in the debate. And how standardized was another question of debate. Um, how big are the differences between these texts and uh, between, say, two different manuscripts and these kinds of questions. And for me, it was obvious pretty early on that um, just looking at multiple manuscripts, these are incredibly close. Um, there is minimal minimal differences between these manuscripts. And I try to think of a way, how can I show that this is the case? And the fact that these are very, very minimal means that they're, one, very well-preserved, and two, that already when we see the first manuscripts and the earliest manuscripts that we have, really are part of a text tradition, a text tradition that is copied from one to the other, from an exemplar to a copy, uh, written transmission, a clear written transmission, and that it wasn't just a oral memory that was being uh, passed around. It wasn't being written down and copied through recitation, but really through copying from one to the next, a very faithful uh, copying at that. So I look for a way to to develop that. How do I show that this is the case? So what I did is I took um, one phrase, but I could have picked hundreds of others, but I took one phrase, ni'matullah, the grace of God, which in, if you take, you know, a modern print Quran, you'll see that this can actually be written in two ways. You can either write it with a a ta'maftuha or a ta'maftuha, the ni'ma part. And so that's either with a ta or a ha, two different letters. And this phrase occurs 23 times in the Quran, 11 times in one spelling and 12 times in the other spelling. So, you know, with an uneven number of things, it's basically 50-50. Well, seeing that kind of spelling, seeing that it's 50-50, you are confronted with the realization, well, apparently this was just random, right? This was up to the scribe, uh, to, to write in one way or the other. Uh, apparently it was someone's choice to do this and choice to do one thing in one place and one thing in the other so um, but that brings us to the question where does this come from exactly and so what I started to do is I started uh, collecting this phrase in all Quranic manuscripts I could get my hands on I look at I think 14 in my article but I actually looked at like 30 more and it just continues to be this pattern and what shows is every single place in the Quran where you find one spelling or the other, every single manuscript agrees that in that place it should be spelled in that way or the other way. Um, so they don't disagree with each other. All these manuscripts have the exact same spelling in the exact same place. And there's no other way to explain this except that they were basically copied from one another. Why? Uh, because there's no difference in pronunciation. These are just two spellings for the exact same phrase. Um, You cannot argue that it may have been pronounced some some differently, whether there was something going on there, that maybe it was understood as something else. There's no doubt that we're looking at the same phrase. Um, There's complete agreement that it's the same phrase, etc. And uh, it's clear from the context that it's the same phrase, but spelled in two different ways. And in all these manuscripts, they keep on using the same spelling in the same place. Well, this can kind of be compared to a... Um, so how this transmission works can be compared to, say, if you would have a student who uh, hands in a paper and the contents of the paper are strikingly close to that of another student. Well, there can be two answers. You, you call them in and you say, hey, what's going on? These texts are exactly the same. And one student says, well, you know, we just uh, talked with each other about this paper and. This is uh, this is just us just completely agreeing with each other. And that's why the text is exactly the same. That would be a kind of oral transmission that gives us this. But then if you start seeing that um, both papers have typos in the exact same place everywhere, well, it's completely, completely unthinkable that uh, two students would be making the exact same typos in the exact same text in all the same places. And when you find that, you know that one person basically just copy-pasted the whole text, and that's what we get. Well, that's what we find in Quranic manuscripts. Um, Maybe people might find it somewhat uh, uh, unpleasant to talk about typos in the Quran. Um, It's not quite a typo, but they are variant spellings. This is quite typical, say, pre-modern, pre-standardized spelling uh, practices. We often see that some words can just be written in multiple ways and that's perfectly fine that's what we see in the quran which is not quite the same as a typo but it helps kind of conceptualize it so this clearly shows a very early written transmission It shows that every single manuscript except for one which we might get to in a second uh, but every single manuscript clearly derives from a single copy and they were constantly copying from each other and that's why all these spellings look exactly the same So we know that there was an archetype. We know that there was a starting point uh, from which all of this spreads. And there are some reasons to to assume that there were actually four copies from the starting point, uh, which were indeed distributed to to Basra, Syria, Kufa, and Medina, which is perfectly in line with the traditional uh, narrative of how Othman standardized it. Um, That helps a lot make the case for an early standardization that that early standardization was indeed done by Othman. So then I started looking at, okay, so we see these spellings and they're very clearly preserved and everything is there, right? All the wording is always the same. It's not just these words, just everything is more or less identical. There are some differences between manuscripts, has some differences in its copying, but getting this signal of uh, an orthographic idiosyncrasy like this, where two words can be written in two ways, but people don't actually disagree when it's written in one way or the other, or manuscripts don't disagree with each other when it's written in one way or the other, that clearly points to a single a single beginning point. And then if you look at these manuscripts that have this signal, this archetypal signal, uh, as I call it, um, they are dated so early, that is through carbon dating, that is through uh, our paleography, so incredibly early, and still they must have still a another um, ancestor that was earlier, that really, I argue, the a much later date than the standardization of Othman is really difficult to envision. Technically, this argument doesn't, cannot argue for that it wasn't earlier than Othman, say maybe in, in the Prophet's time. Um, but I think if that was the case, the tradition would have probably communicated that. Um, and the fact that it so explicitly doesn't, while it would have probably been nicer to have a completely written text earlier, um, is a good reason to assume that actually the attribution to Athman seems to be correct and that yes, the text was very well preserved from that very first po- point up until today uh, basically. Um, and that's kind of kind of the, the the gist of the argument.
0: So thank you again for that uh, you know summarizing that very, very important paper and I urge listeners to read that paper and to engage with it uh, as critically as possible. Kind of, again, yes, yes. It's open access, and so there's less of an excuse. Um, So I want to move on kind of to, I guess, the culmination of of, of this this discussion. So how how does modern research agree or disagree with the claims made by pre-modern scholars of the Quran and really the, the whole Islamic tradition when it comes to its recording, its codification, its transmission, the fact that it's never been altered? and its verse numberings and sewer order. And I can repeat this as we go on.
1: Yeah, sure. So one thing it shows is, well, first, this text was clearly codified early. Uh, we know that much. We know something about about its, its textual history. We know how this text was distributed, how it ended up in different places. Um, and um, we learned something about its spelling. So now that we have some certainty that the text was written down very early, which would have been clear for all kinds of other reasons. First of all, the spelling system that the Quran uses is radically different from, say, what later becomes, well, radically different is a big word, is quite different from what becomes the um, standard writing system and it has very obvious hints that seem to suggest to me at least that it was indeed written down um, in the language of the hijaz uh, in the uh, hijazi language which makes historical sense if indeed the quran was standardized in hijaz by uthman Um, but of course uh, makes for some questions elsewhere Um, and it is clearly part of a writing tradition it seems to know how to write things it's not um, that this is the first time they're writing something and it's also quite different it should be said from pre-islamic arabic written in the arabic script uh, from other regions so if you look at more northern uh, uh, written arabic um, they clearly have a different writing tradition so say this is the, the post nabatean kingdom nabateen arabic writing um, by this time we start really seeing quite a lot of something that's very close to Arabic, some um, Nabataean through it. And they really have different writing practices. They spell things differently, do things differently. And it seems quite clear that the Quran comes from a context where this writing practice has been adapted to uh, the dialect of the Hijaz and that they were using this already, which suggests that they really were writing in a kind of vernacular that they knew at the time and used this spelling to write the Qur'an. There's actually some, some transmissions uh, in the in tradition that mention this and say, uh, you know, whenever you disagree, make sure that you just spell it the way you should spell it if you if you would be a Qurashi. This tells us something at least about the literacy of, of, of the region, right? We know that um, there must have been something. It's not like they, they invented writing out of nothing. It, there was a long history of writing, um, but there's also clear innovations in the Hejaz that have happened between the pre-Islamic period and The Quran showing up and there's a gap there. We don't have a lot of inscriptions from the pre-Islamic period, specifically from the Hijaz, especially from the relevant part of the Hijaz that is around Mecca and Medina. Um, We don't really have anything. We don't. There should be a lot more um, archaeological uh, research that should be done, epigraphic research that should be done. And hopefully some stuff will start showing up. Um, But it seems to suggest that, that there was something going on with this. Now, when it comes to the codification um, of the text itself, and and I'll, I'll do this together with uh, transmission, really. So when the text was codified, uh, the tradition says the Quran was codified without any dots at all, and it was quite an ambiguous what well, we call Rasm rasm tracing, uh, with only the letter shapes. I don't think there is compelling historical evidence to assume that that is true. Um, What does seem true, however, is that it probably had very few uh, consonantal dotings and that indeed a good part of the text must have been um, somewhat ambiguous and not always clear how a certain word should be read uh, because multiple valid options are there. And this kind of multiple valid options we see actually appear in the reading traditions we see that reading traditions sometimes read is sentence both as active or as passive and it just you know comes down that it could just be read in both ways from the way it is spelled now the question is what does that mean so traditionally it said well these were different variants which were all revealed at some point uh, uh, during you know uh, the career of the prophets Um, Whether that's true or not, I mean, really depends on on how much trust you you place in in these transmissions. Um, It's very difficult to be certain about these things. There's probably some truth to this. There's a very nice paper by uh, Yasin Dutton, who talks about orality in the Quran, and talks about, say, this early transmission, where some of this variation comes from, and I think he makes a very compelling case that, yes, there was some amount of variation, Um, and some of that variation may have ended up in the reading traditions that we have, Um, But a lot of variation was also lost because there was now a standard text. And if you deviated from that standard text, you couldn't recite in that way anymore. And a lot of variation, I think, has probably also been added since then uh, because there was just, you know, maybe the person had memorized the Quran in a different way than the text seems to suggest. And has to now, has the text in front of him. Must adhere to this text, which is really one of the important keys of of the readings that come after the standardization of Uthman, man, um, and come to a different conclusion, and that's where some of this disagreement comes from. Um, that's at least how I look at this, and I think I think actually quite defensible, uh, but not quite in line with with I would say what the orthodoxy and how some of these variants happen, and uh, so that also comes down to the transmission another thing is the, the the Islamic tradition especially today actually um, very strongly focuses on the orality of the Quran people have memorized it people are able to memorize it of course uh, enormous enormous amounts of text uh, very impressive I cannot uh, pretend to be a, be able to do that at all um, but there's a very strong focus on this orality and oral transmission of the Quran and uh, sometimes to the point that the text itself is considered almost irrelevant. You get this every now and then uh, on Twitter where people go, well, you know, even if the Quran would be lost today, we would be able to write a new copy the next day because everybody has remembered it. And uh, while that's true, uh, to some extent, you would be able to get the recitation back, but you would not necessarily be able to get the Rassan back. The original um, written texts and well some might say well who cares Uh, it's about the recitation that's the oral tradition that's the one that matters Um, but that's clearly not how early muslims thought about this text because the fact that we can find an archetype from these minor spelling differences means they cared a lot about um, copying this uh, text very accurately to to the very minutest detail that even when it doesn't actually matter in the pronunciation they would still copy it uh, copy it precisely like with the net Matala example and that kind of brings an interesting side to this there are kind of two strands of transmission which are in interaction the oral tradition is not independent of the written tradition and the written tradition is not entirely independent from the from the reading traditions either Um, but one um, thing that really shows very nicely that this is interaction between what is written and what is recited and what is say um, transmitted orally and one nice example of this is that among the um, Quranic manuscripts that we have Quranic manuscripts can have what we call regionality. So what does that mean? Um, These four early copies that we talked about, uh, so there were four early copies made of the Quran, Medina, Kufa, uh, Syria, and Basra. They have tiny differences between one another. It's about 40 places where they differ, and these differences are really minute. So it comes down to, you know, whether a word starts with wa, and, or fa, or whether there's no word at all, um, you know, some of the regional differences can be, can be, can be slightly bigger. Um, so you get this uh, example where uh, some readers will read qala, he said, instead of kul, say, um, these kinds of differences. Uh, and there's a couple of these. Um, and these differences are reported by, by, by the, um, by the Muslim tradition, it says, you know, uh, the Uh, manuscripts or the mushafs in in Syria have these variants, the mushafs in Medina have these variants, and they list these quite nicely. And these lists, you can use them on early manuscripts and actually see, look, this is clearly a Syrian manuscript, clearly a Medina manuscript. Sometimes it gets a bit messier, but it tends to get messier in later manuscripts. Early manuscripts are very, very accurately copied. Um, Hopefully a a very nice article uh, by my colleague, Haithun uh will come out uh, on this uh, topic, and he shows very nicely, it's very, very um, precisely, co- uh, it's very, very precisely corresponds to what the tradition transmits. Now, if we look at the reading tradition, so the recitations that are used in these different regions, they follow the, uh, the text of these different regional variants, the regionality of these manuscripts, very closely. Um, and very often this is explained well clearly Othman was aware of some of the variants that were around and he just had um, these manuscripts made in these tiny differences and sentiments um, I don't think that is the most likely way to interpret the data um, as I said the differences are minute uh, very irrelevant uh, none of them have any significant impact on the meaning of the text um, they're just mostly just, you know tiny variants. And if we look at what gets transmitted before the standardization of, of man, there's much more variation. For example, uh, readings before the standardization of Ibn uh, it has said to have, you know, like real differences, different wording, different different constructions, these kinds of things. And this is much smaller. So clearly, it seems that these, these variants just kind of snuck in during copying mistakes, uh, more likely than um, purposeful putting in some variation maybe you know which just wasn't quite as important but these things happen it's very few of them only 40 you know with the thousands of words that are in the Quran it's not that much Um, but it seems that these different readers from different readers uh, from different regions had this manuscript and would indeed try to adhere to that manuscript as much as possible they may have learned an oral tradition that was different uh, and that deviated from the text but now with the automatic standardization had to follow it And that means that their readings indeed follow quite closely exactly what is written in those texts and that's what we see so there's a clear interaction going on between what is written and what is spoken and um there's a kind of it is not fully oral it's not fully written transmission there's something in between and these things are going on that brings us to the question to what extent has the 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 text been altered or not um That's a difficult question. It depends on what you mean by altered. Uh, Is a difference between saying, uh, you know, and in a certain place, or so in a certain place, wa or fa, is that really altering? I don't know. Um, The text is very, very well transmitted, um, but really only after the written standardization. If we look at transmissions of earlier periods, so before the standardization, we don't have much of this. We only have very tiny tidbits here and there. Uh, we have that both from the tradition. We get some transmissions of, you know, what some of the important companions had, what Ubay had, what even Mas'ud had in their recitations, and these cannot agree with the authentic text. They were clearly somewhat different. So it sh- seems to show that there was some amount of oral variation, some amount of variation going on in the transmission of this text um, before the text was standardized. After the standardization, that variation was... Much more minute than before that, uh, for obvious reasons, because there was a text you had to adhere to. Um, so before that time, it was it was more varied, um, and you know the question is, was the text altered um, through that? Well, that depends on what you mean by altering. Um, what is is oral transmission of more or less what the text is supposed to say? You know, there's not massive differences in meaning, these kinds of things. Um, what is going on there, how do we understand this. And what's very interesting about this now is that we get a new insight into this, and that is from a Quranic manuscript. There's one manuscript, um, which is the Sana'a palimpsest. And this is a text. The palimpsest is is any text which has a text that has been washed off or taken off, and a new text has been overwritten. And what's interesting about this uh, palimpsest from Sana'a is it's a fairly fairly big manuscript we have a lot of folios and it has an upper text and the upper text is just the uthmanic text the so standard text i actually use it in my niamatullah article um, to show that yes it's just basically agreeing with the standard text as we know it but the text that has been washed off is a quran too uh, it is a quranic manuscript clearly quranic manuscripts and it agrees to a very large extent with what we have but it's not an uthmanic text it is what seems to be a pre-Othmanic text. Um, and um, this text, uh, s- some wonderful work has been done by, by first Elizabeth Puyn and then uh, 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 Behnam Sadri and, and um, uh, Mohsen Godarzi, uh, and later also by Asmae Lali. This text clearly deviates from the standard text in certain places. Um, this means transposition of words. Um, or leaving out certain parts, uh, assimilation of certain phases and certain formulaic phases, which are very similar in one place or the other. And a surah order is different in these manuscripts, which is also something that's reported for the companion codices. So Quran says, for example, Ibn Mas'ud would have had, um, it's transmitted that that also had different orders of surahs. So in that transmission there, there's some amount of, uh, so this is actually a very nice insight, like what a Quran would have looked like before the standardization of Othman and this has very obvious similarities with what gets reported by the tradition Um, it is exactly these kinds of tiny differences sometimes a difference in person sometimes a difference in whether it's a passive or an active sometimes some words missing going around these kinds of things but the general gist of the text is more or less identical and something which kind of um, brings home how how similar these texts are um, is We can still use the standard text to navigate this palimpsest. So uh, this lower text of the palimpsest, I should say. Um, So we will still talk about, you know, Surat al-Baqarah, verse, that number or the other. That works just fine. We'll find it. It's there. Um, I think there's one place where two two ayahs, uh, so two verses, are um, transposed. But mostly the verse order is exactly the same still. But within these verses, there are tiny variants here and there. So this is the kind of variation I think is likely to be attributed to a pre-Authmanic time, which doesn't necessarily mean that the manuscript itself is pre-Authmanic. It could be that after the standardization of Othman, not all regions were... Immediately taking up this new standardization of the text and continued certain other textual traditions. This is transmitted, uh, especially for Kufa, where people are said to have adhered to the recitation and the Mus'haf, uh, so the, the codex of um, Ibn Mas'ud for, for quite a long time, for centuries after the thing. Whether how much of that is true, how much of that is historical, is a big question. But we see that there was some amount of disagreement on whether you really had to stick to this Uthmanic text and only the real orthodoxy of only sticking to that text may have taken a bit longer. Um, so, and this brings us to, you know, questions of verse numbering, surah order. Um, so in the Uthmanic text, the surah order is fixed and in the Uthmanic manuscripts that we have, the surah order is um, identical in any single manuscript. We never find a difference. Uh, there's a tiny group of manuscripts that sometimes has slightly different orders. Um, I'm working on that. I cannot say much about it right now. Uh, there's something going on there, but basically the standard Lothmanic text always has the um, same surah order. Also, it always has the same verse order. That's all the same. Um, so it's very, it's just very accurate from start to finish. And, and so questions of, you know, is maybe, uh, a whole surah, uh, a whole ayah missing, a whole surah missing, that just doesn't show up. Um, it's very clear that this text was complete from the start, um, there's no conspicuous absences in, in early manuscripts, no, uh, there's never one verse to the other that doesn't go in the order that we expected them to, sometimes there's omissions. Um, but very often we can understand these omissions as accidental uh, omissions because two things, you know, when I skipped, two, two verses were very similar, that you accidentally continued copying somewhere else where you should have, and it very often gets corrected, sometimes even by the same uh, scribe. Verse numbering, though, is quite different. Um, even today, uh, the different reading traditions follow different verse numbers. So there is a Kufan numbering, there's a Medina numbering, there's a Meccan numbering. Uh, there is a, a Hamzi and a Dimashqi uh, verse numbering. And um, these differences are differences we see in manuscripts. And um, early manuscripts sometimes do strange things with, with verse numbering. And it seems that this was quite as standardized as, say, the rest of the text. Apparently, you could have different opinions on where verse divisions were supposed to go, and we do find different uh, opinions of where the verse differences are supposed to go. But even these um, seem to get somewhat stabilized quite early on, and we can often say, you know, this manuscript clearly has a verse numbering which is related to the the standard Syrian... uh, First numbering that we know today, or this one looks like the standard Medellin verse numbering. Uh, but this is something we look at when we look at manuscripts, we look at regionality of the Rasim, so some of these differences, we look at the first numbering and how these differ from one
0: another, so these are some of the things that we see. And w- one final question while we're on the subject, and you did delve into this a little bit, is there evidence in the manuscripts of a phenomenon that has not been recorded by scholars of Arabic or the Quran? And if so, what are the uh, what are the implications of this?
1: Yeah. Um, so we do find this. Um, so, so some of the variants, so, so when we look at the Salaam uh, palimpsest, um, whenever I say Salaam palimpsest, I will mean the lower text. Uh, some people are very pedantic about this. I'm not, uh, the upper text is just not that interesting to me. So I'll say Salaam palimpsest. The Salaam palimpsest clearly has some variants which are not recorded by the tradition. It also has some variants, which are non-canonical, but do get recorded by the, t- by the tradition, so that's cool. Um, and that is uh, something we see. Every now and then we see continental dotting in early manuscripts which reflect readings which are not um, recorded in the Islamic tradition. Um, that's rare, but it occurs. What's interesting, though, is that in later manuscripts, these things change, um, and this is we're, we're going to talk about um, manuscripts that start using vocalization. That is, they start writing vowels. Um, the earliest manuscripts don't have any vowels at all, so they don't have the fatha, the kasra, the bamma, these kinds of things. They're all absent, they don't have a shaddah. they can't write these things, and they only write the letters. Um, but at some point, they start writing vowels, they start adding vowels, and it's gorgeous manuscripts, this is in the Kufic Kufic manuscript period um, and they start using mostly red dots to write um, the reading traditions, so the reading traditions that are associated with the recitation of the Quran. And something really cool comes out of that. Once you start looking at that um, you find that it is absolutely filled with forms that are not transmitted. Um, Let me modulate that a little bit. So very often specific variants that we find that are in these manuscripts, written in these manuscripts, are variants that are known to the tradition. They are recorded and they'll say, yeah, you know, this person embedded like this, that person embedded like that. Um, But as a whole, if you take these vocalized manuscripts, very commonly you find that they have systems and they have a complete reading which does not agree with the canonical readings as we know them so let's go back to the canonical readings real quick canonical readings as we know them so there's 10 different readings and these are systems they're complete right so every so once you follow a one reading of the quran you follow the every single word is basically determined for you how you're supposed to read it so every variant in wording is different every difference in grammar is basically done so these are complete systems start to finish of the whole quran The reading of Hamza is, in in a sense, a whole Quran, so to speak. The reading of Warsh is a whole Quran, right? Um, Then if you look at these manuscripts, you find, yes, they sometimes have known elements, but we cannot connect it to any one, certainly not to any one canonical reader, but not even to any one non-canonical reader. We find all these little bits, but the whole system that we find, and they're very often clear systems, they don't show up in a tradition. Um, And we see that quite a lot, actually. Um, And this is both in, say, the grammatical part. There are some real differences in in how the grammar of these readings that we find in these vocalized manuscripts work, but also in the wording and how these wordings combine. Um, And every now and then, especially in the grammatical part, which is the part I'm interested in, so that's why I know it better, might also be in the readings, Um, we find things that just do not get recorded by the tradition at all. The tradition records a lot of things uh, but some of these just don't show up. So I've been doing a, a research into the pronominal system of um, Quranic manuscripts together with my colleague Haitham Sidki, and, Sitke. and um, we've been studying these vocalized Qurans and see, okay, what do we see here? What systems do we see here in the pronouns? And we're looking at the third-person pronoun, which is uh, the singular, is you know, uh, uh, like we find in uh, I don't know Kitabohon, um, uh, right, his book or uh, um their books so Hu and Hon and how these kind of develop and there's this large group of manuscripts which does something interesting something that none of the canonical readings do which is they don't harmonize what does that mean? well, so if you would say um, in classical Arabic or in most canonical reading traditions you want to say um,
0: uh, to them
1: or to them you would say ilai him or to him you would say ilai he um, or in it you would say fihi um, and then in these manuscripts we find endless examples where that kind of vowel harmony doesn't happen and instead you get ilai ho and fiho, and um, sometimes we even find biho um, so we find this very different system we find um, alai homo and while all these different variants are mentioned, the specific systems that we find in these manuscripts do not get recorded at all. We cannot look at these manuscripts and say, oh, that's this reader. It's not one of the canonical readers, but it's not even one of the non-canonical readers that get recorded. And that's because the non-canonical readers get recorded much less accurately. So there's a lot of stuff to be found there still, and you constantly run into this. And uh, one of say, my hobbies that I do with these kinds of things, I read the the, the grammarians, to early grammarians, and every now and then the early grammarians say something strange and something that I do not recognize from the canonical reading traditions. like, well, that, that's strange. Um, I've never, never seen this um, in the canonical reading traditions. And then I open up uh, the manuscripts and look at the manuscripts, and there it is, and there I found it. I had one of these things just the other day. Um, For Sibawe, he describes that um, the plural of Rasul is Rusul or Rusl without a U in the second syllable. So Rusl. I was like, well, that's funny. Uh, None of the canonical reading traditions ever do that. Um, They always have Rusul. Um, And then I was like, well, okay, if Sibawe describes it as a way of saying things, uh, I bet it's there in one of the manuscripts. So I started looking into the manuscripts, and there it was. It just, you know, was there in in my face, looking at me, and there it was. And that just shows when you find that in a manuscript, that manuscript is not a canonical reading, because none of the canonical readers do this. And as I said, if you find one deviation, basically, uh, you lose the whole system, because the whole system of a reading is every single word is determined. And then if you start looking further, you start seeing all these other deviations. So what does this mean? Um, It means when it comes to the recitation, Um, There was a lot of difference of opinion. Um, Not just, so among the canonical readers, there's already quite a lot of difference of opinion, but there were many more opinions than just the canonical readers. The canonical readers get standardized um, in the 4th century, uh, early 4th century history, while they were active in in the mid-2nd century, mostly. Uh, So quite a long time after that. And they get standardized because they're supposed to be the most popular readings, etc. But really, we have manuscripts from the lifetime of the canonizer, Ibn Mujahid, that do not follow these standard readings. Uh, and a real shift seems to happen after the canonization. Uh, but how profound that shift is is something that really hasn't really been looked into very much. Uh, But before that period, there's really chaos, a lot of different things, but not total chaos. There are manuscripts that have a non-canonical reading, one that's not recorded by the tradition, but they do agree with one another. They do have the same um, reading, so you can overlay them and see that they actually follow the same system. So they follow a system, they just don't follow a system that has been recorded by
0: the tradition, which I think is quite exciting. Thank you very much. That is actually very, very fascinating and indeed very, very exciting. As we conclude this episode, I I wanted to ask: Do you have any advice for students who are interested in pursuing these fields?
1: Yes. Uh, First, uh, please do it. Um, It's wonderful work. There's lots to be done. Um, So, um, recent years. uh, So, first of all, I mean, there there is no there's no uh, program to learn this, right? Um, I was going to teach a, a, a summer school course, um, but uh, due to the coronavirus, uh, this has been cancelled. Uh, and other than that, there's not really something to be done that way. Um, and there isn't really a non-technical way of going about these things, but it has become easier than ever to work on this kind of material. There's lots of wonderful works out there by now. Uh, François de Roche's work is very important. Eleonore Sellard's work is very important. Um, and uh, Alain Georges has done wonderful work, Yassine Dutton has done wonderful work, um, and have been kind of laying out how you look at these kinds of manuscripts. How do you study these? And um, you can read this, you can look them up, you find them in the library. Um, and. Uh, or if you're, if you're lucky and have access uh, through universities, uh, you can just uh, usually even download the PDFs. Um, really wonderful uh, material that you can study. Also, I should mention uh, Shadi Nasser's work on the, the transmission of the reading traditions. Uh, that's really wonderful. That's less interested in the manuscripts, but more in the reading traditions. And, uh, it's really quite good, and a new book of his is supposed to be coming out very soon. And. But what's nice is that you have access to these manuscripts, most of these are digitized by now. So one thing that should absolutely be mentioned is what got me into working on this material is Corpus Quranicum. Um This is uh, corpusquaranicum.de, it's a German website, it's uh, run by um, a group of researchers in Berlin. and um, they. It, it is a, just an absolutely fantastic research, especially for earlier manuscripts, not so much for later manuscripts, although they're sort of incorporating those two, um, where you can look through the manuscripts and say, okay, I want to find um, this surah, this ayah, uh, and show me this. And then it'll just display a manuscript, and i will have a little menu, and you can just look at all the manuscripts that have that surah and ayah. And you can just navigate by them. And some of them are transcribed, some of them only have the picture, but there it is. And um, that allows you to look at an enormous amount of manuscripts in a very short time. You can do this kind of comparative stuff, see how they differ from each other, and see how they look similar to each other, which very often they do. And also, look how they look similar to each other compared to the modern print editions. There's some um i would call mistakes although some people don't like it when i call them mistakes but mistakes in the standard text as we have it today and um where there's slight variations from how the early manuscripts write them it's actually incredibly accurate uh, the, the the modern print editions um, but they do deviate sometimes systematically from the early manuscripts early manuscripts agree with each other and looking at these early manuscripts you can look at them you can compare them see how they're similar and you can get something really cool out of that like my the article. article basically was just born from that uh, I couldn't have done that without the Corpus Quranic website so that's really wonderful um, but um, also uh, the website uh, on, uh, the, of, of the Bibliothèque Nationale de France which has the largest collection of Quranic manuscripts out there uh, is really excellent for this uh, it's called Gallica if you type Gallica you find it G-A-L-L-I-C-A and uh, it just has all these manuscripts digitized you kind of have to learn how to search for them but um, that is something uh, you can figure out uh, you need to know the numbers of the manuscripts and then you can type the name of the manuscript and you can find them um, also uh, the Staatsbibliothek of Berlin is starting to um, digitize a lot too so all of these things are starting to become available it's um sadly not really a a good resource at the moment yet where you can find where you can find all these manuscripts they're kind of scattered all over the internet so you need to have some knowledge Um, but people can always uh, tag me on twitter and ask me and i'll tell them where to find these manuscripts um because Quran Gateway is making some um, work. This is another website. If you type you can find it. Uh, Right now, it's not too suited for the study of manuscripts, but is working on a database of all the different manuscripts and where they're scattered. Because very often, manuscripts that we talk about, they're scattered through different libraries. So some libraries have some folios here, and other libraries have other folios there. And they kind of need to be brought together in a thing. Um, But really, the best place to start is is the Corpus Quranicum. that has them all in place and not all the manuscripts that I would want to use are necessarily there and they're not always in the right quality but they're a very good place to start and that's easy to find and easy to navigate you have to know some German the website is in German I think it's technically an English version but just clicking around
0: should probably uh, help people along and and do you have any projects that we should be looking out for any 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 books you're mentioning some stuff about earlier
1: yeah Um, so i'm currently finishing up a book uh, of my current research project i'm doing a postdoc right now in light on chronic arabic which um, i guess has the title chronic arabic from its hijazi origins to its classical reading traditions Um, i'm finishing up that right now and i hope to finish that by the end of the school year um, which uh, should be in september and then will of course take forever before it is actually published so um look out for that but it's going to take some time and the next project that i'll be working on is i'll be going to the institute for advanced study in princeton uh, and i'll be working there for half a year uh, from january 2021 uh, onwards um, uh, to look at these vocalized manuscripts um, the ones i was just talking about that have these non-canonical readings Uh, there's one group of non-canonical readings which seem to form a pretty close-knit group. They're all written in the same style, they all seem to come from Basra originally, and have this kind of reading tradition which doesn't look like anything that was recorded. And I propose to look at these and kind of do a, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what it's going to look like. Is it going to be some kind of critical edition of just this reading tradition? Um, I I don't quite know uh, what that's going to look like, but I'm going to be looking at those, and very specifically at those. Um, and after that, I don't know, um, I'm hoping uh, some projects will go through in the future, uh, but I'm still waiting for funding agencies to tell me they'll give me a ton of money to do it. Uh, but for now, I am only looking forward to the work uh, in
0: Princeton. So that's what it's going to look like for now. Yeah. And I wish you all the, all the luck, and I'm sure people who are familiar with your work also are really looking forward to this, more of the stuff that you produce thank you again so much for giving me so much time uh, this was such a detailed and informative discussion i really hope our listeners can benefit from it um, it's wonderful it's great to, to use this format once to, to talk
1: about these things very often I, i'm either on twitter or writing about these things but talking about it is quite fun as well so it's great to to, to do this so thank you for having me
0: yes absolutely